funny. Everyone thinks of their primary residence as their best investment. Well, your best investment should not be 100% emotional and people's houses are 100% emotional. So they, it is very hard when, you know, and they use the justification of an asset to tell me why they need a heated floor in their master bathroom. Well, last time I checked, your appraiser is not going to come in and be like, ooh, your floor's heated. You get another 500 bucks. You know, it just doesn't work like that. Welcome to Critical Thinking Required, hosted by LBW. This podcast is intended for free thinkers, entrepreneurs, and knowledge seekers. Join us as we discuss relevant financial topics, explore with guests their financial journeys, and engage with experts in industries such as space, media and entertainment, real estate, and many more. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Welcome to Critical Thinking Required. You're with your hosts, myself, Tim Bickmore, and my two colleagues, Dan Weiss and Nathaniel Leach. And today we have a guest, Tony Bickmore. And yes, for all our listeners, uh, we are related. Tony is my brother. We're super excited to have him on as Tony is the founder of Bickmore Construction. And we brought him on because I think Dan and I probably have a conversation about real estate, either real estate investing or flipping a home, doing remodeling to a home, trying to make more money in their primary residence. And as we want to do this on our podcast, we wanted to bring an expert along to talk about that process and, and get a little bit more into the details of that. So we're super excited to have Tony on. Um, before we start, I'm going to do a bio quick for Tony. And I'm actually going to show a little bit of Tony's website at bickmoreconstruction.com to show everybody uh, a little bit of his projects that he's done over the years. So I'm going to start with the bio. So I'll have to admit, you know, this is, uh, Tony was born to be in construction. So if Tony were to go back at our childhood, we've been on job sites since I think the day I could walk. Um, one of us really kind of grasped to it and the other one didn't. Uh, you can probably see which one did. Tony obviously really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I remember by the age of 16, Tony had his own truck, his own tools and was doing his own jobs from a tile perspective, which is quite impressive for that age. And he really has never stopped. He's done quite a bit in the construction world. Uh, he's pretty much self-taught. I mean, Tony's gone from doing his own tile jobs to working on multi-million dollar homes in Hawaii to founding his own uh, remodel and new build construction company. So it's quite impressive what Tony's done. Bickmore Construction currently works on remodels of $500,000 and above and rebuilds that are a million dollars plus. So they're doing really nice work. It's very custom. He's very service focused and he's got a lot of knowledge when it comes to both the residential as well as the investment real estate world. So Tony, we're really, really excited. Um, before you actually talk, I'm going to show your, your website so I can show it off a little bit. So give me one, one quick minute here. Um, so this is Tony's website. I always tell people about Tony and everyone's like, oh, what does he really do? I'm like, these are some of the projects. So there are some really, really nice homes. The farm is actually a brand new build. Uh, some of these, the holiday remodel um, are really great. I'm actually going to scroll back up and go into the farm. Um, this is a beautiful home up in Charleston, Utah. So Tony, I mean, this, this is, this is an, an impressive one. I've actually gone and seen it myself in person and it's even more beautiful in person than it is in these great pictures. So just to give our viewers a little bit of a sense of what Tony has done um, over the last five years since founding Bickmore Construction. But Tony, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me. Thanks for giving us a plug on the website. No problem. Uh, you know, be, I, I will mention before I hop into this question, uh, the farm is, is a really important property uh, for me. Uh, and I'm sure we'll touch on this too. You know, my wife and I rebuilt our home about a little over a year ago. And uh, the builder here asked, what's your favorite part about the house? There's a lot of things we like, but you know what my answer is? And, and it comes from you, Tony, right? Mm -hmm. My answer is that that farm property, if I recall correctly, has these automatic um, thermo-heated did I forgot? Did you get yours in? I forgot you did one of those. Yeah, I did. I did. So Tony told me about this because that farm has that. And, and I put that in on my property for our horses. And uh, oh my God, it's my favorite thing about the house. I haven't had to fill up a water trough since then. And right. I, I don't even remember those days. Like. So thank you personally, Tony, for, for that and all the favors that you give that you give our, our clients. Uh, you know, my question is coming from a guy that can, you know, me that says barely swing a hammer. Why construction? <laughs> so construction was something that, you know, kind of like Scooter said, I don't know if I had a choice not to go into it. It uh, happened to be something that I enjoyed doing. It, it fits my personality of being a little ADD, being a little bit of, you know, I can be in the office for three hours and be on site swinging a hammer for three hours and be management for three hours. And, and it's doing a good job and it's not bouncing around and not being able to stay within a job description. So it, it fits my personality. Well, I've always been someone that enjoys working with my hands. Um, you know, I, I originally started and got sucked into it probably like most young tradesmen where, you know, you're sitting at a college desk going, man, I could be making 30 bucks an hour. What am I doing in trig that I've already done in high school? Um, you know, and so immediately it's just like, how am I going to do this? I want to get out there and, and, and also loving it. It was never worked to me. You know, I, Scooter said when we were younger, I'd, I'd gone and, and I remember days where, you know, I was in college and, and go hang out with my friends and at night go grout townhomes, you know, and get them done and, and always, always, you know, it was obviously work, but just something about it that, you know, doing something, seeing progress, seeing my product in front of me and that live result just intrigued me from the beginning. Um, and as I've gotten older, I've had to try to figure out how to, you know, take it and be mature about it. And like Scooter said, I'm or Tim, sorry, that I'm self-taught and, um, you know, and you, I lean on you guys a lot. Your guys' company is huge for us. You know, we use a lot of you guys, um, every single one of you in this company for a lot of our business planning, a lot of, you know, our, our business consulting. And, and that's honestly, I don't know how any small business owner, and I'm not just saying that as a plug, we didn't even talk about saying this, um, you know, it's huge for a lot of people like me that don't come from a background of, you know, formal education in a lot of these subjects, you're just left to learn it yourself. So it's, it's fun. It's challenging for me, but you know, without the network I have, I wouldn't be able to sustain um, the success I've had so far. So, um, yeah, now we're here now. So, and, and for the audience who, who Tony alluded to it, Scooter is Tim. And if you, if you <laughs> yeah. watched or heard our Cats podcast, out of bag. Ago, yeah, you, you would know that actually, right? Because we interviewed him and that came right off the bat. So, <laughs> so Tony, don't you call him Scooter. That's totally, everyone's okay with that audience okay, and good. all. Um, you know, I, I've seen your work firsthand. I mean, it's incredible stuff. And hearing you speak and seeing it, 
you know, the passion that you have for just busts out the seams. And I think when someone's truly passionate about what they do, it is more than just a job. We know what that's like too. And, uh, and you just do better work. Um, was there any other, just, you know, obviously you grew up in this industry trying to really kind of, um, you know, bring in on that passion play. I mean, were there any other professional loves or was it always construction? Was it just a no brainer? This is what I'm going to do. And, and how has that morphed? So I went to Montana state my first year of college and uh, started the, they have a five years master's program for architecture and, and enrolled in that and did the first year of that and realized, you know, and they have a very great program and it's true architecture. It's not drafting. There's a big difference between architecture and and learning to use AutoCAD. And I realized right off the bat, I am not a creative artistic person. That is just not in my wheelhouse. And the first year was about gestalt and shapes. And I was just like, I am out of place. Like I tried my best. I, you know, did, I was engaged with it. It was a lot of modelings, but I don't think we talked about construction in the first year. You know, I remember our, our final project was a cube that you had to take shapes out of and then make a secondary cube that was a negative the first and just being like, man, this just doesn't spark me. And so then I um, changed schools, went to the University of Utah and got into engineering and realized that wasn't for me either. You know, like I cannot sit behind a desk all day and crunch numbers. These guys don't even see the jobs. They look at plans. They, you know, are, are statisticians or mathematicians, you know, which I, I lean being, you know, out of all my, my education talents i probably lean stronger in those but still just couldn't vibe with the thought of of going that direction and at that time i was leaning towards the end of my college years and had an opportunity to take over my dad's tile company and he had a couple employees and i i decided to take a run at that and and next thing led to another i i turned that into a small remodeling business and turned that into a, a full legit you know full service construction business so kind of a few others, but not really, you know, everything led me down to this path. I have no idea what I would do without it. Probably come sweep floors for you guys. I have, I have no idea. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and the thing is, is, which is always great. You know, we talk about the trades is, you know, at worst, you can always go back to tiling, right? I mean, we can always go back to the yeah. tiling, the tiling side of things, but I mean, the work that you do, I don't think you'll ever go back to that. And I think Dan mentioned your work really does the passion that you can tell your, your passion comes through your work. You can look at your work and know that you're passionate about it because it's well done. It's well thought through. And it's really fun to, to go that route. But, you know, kind of going into the more of the details of this podcast, you know, as I mentioned, we have a lot of our clients that come to us to talk about doing a remodel or building a new home or just in general primary residences. And, you know, we have a lot of clients that want to do a remodel because they want to increase the value of their home to make money on it. We have some clients that want to do a new build because they think it might be cheaper than buying a, a house and then having to do some cosmetic adjustments to it. And so we get that and we can talk about the numbers, but what we want to talk to you about is what's the process like? What are people missing? What is it not? So can you just start with like, where do people start? They come to us and we send them to you. Just start us from the beginning. Yeah. And then we turn them around and send them right back to you guys. <laughs> you know, um, the process is, is, you know, and obviously depends. So if we're, if we're going to throw out some assumptions before we get started down this path, you know, we're talking about a, a, a good size project. So we're not talking about someone that wants to 
paint their living room or, you know, this is something that involves moving some walls, um, you know, and really upgrading their home or like you said, you know, possibly looking at a new one. And so, you know, in, in our kind of neighborhoods and stuff, that's kind of north of $100,000 gets you into bigger size projects, um, depending on. So the process usually starts with um, our round one meeting. We've kind of, you know, put in these three rounds of process to help people through um, this stage. And it's all about finding out if the project is realistic. You know, that's our key word for round one is, is your project realistic? And what that means is, does your budget match your dreams? And that is, that is such, we could talk for four hours along just that phrase. And a lot of the times it's what's your budget and to get there involves a whole mess of things. It starts with, you know, what, what should you spend on your home? What are the things you want to do and what should they cost? Um, how are you financing this project? Do you have somewhere to live during this project? So meaning, are there other things you need to account for in the costs, you know, rent, storage units, you know, we just had a pod delivered from a, a project we just finished up. They had to have a pod for nine months, um, kind of all these things. And we kind of really highlight everything that goes into the project to make sure you're realistic. So you don't come to us and say, Hey, you know, we really want to redo our main floor. We'll live in the basement and we have $20,000. And I say, Oh, that's fantastic. You need to save for about five years and come back to me at 20 grand a year. And you know, we can get started on conversations. So we don't ever want to lead someone too far down the path um, when their budget doesn't match their wants and needs. Um, and that, and that's kind of the very basic steps is, is trying to figure out what their budget is and what they want to do. So when you're talking about the budget specifically, and I know we've talked about this, how do people come to their budget when they come to you? <laughs> sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know. They just pulled that out. I think a lot of the times, honestly, if I had to guess, people create their budgets versus against one of two things, money that they've saved. They've they've just saved $70,000 or they just got some inheritance or they just got a bonus at work. Or they talked to a friend that did a, what they thought was similar project, but it never is. Um, so they're assuming that's how much their job will cost. That's usually the basis of where somebody starts with their budget. Um, and then our job is to relate to them how close or far away that is from when they actually begin to say what they want to do. So, um, to, to, for example, I had a client meeting last week, um, they had $80,000 to spend and they wanted to redo their main floor. And I asked them, you know, why is your budget 80,000? They said, oh, well, a neighbor down the street did their main floor for 80,000. And so we thought it'd be good. And I was like, okay, well, let's talk about your neighbor's house. Well, it was 500 square feet smaller. It had one less bathroom, you know, and all these, they're like, oh yeah, well, it's a little, and I'm like, well, you know, most bathrooms are, you know, 12 to 20 grand, you know, affordable. So you're kind of, you know, off there and just kind of walking them through some of those high level things. Um, and then from there, the conversation leads into what should your budget be and what your budget should be versus what your budget is, is probably the hardest part of round one. And to get to where your project should be, 
comes into a lot of where we kick it back to you guys. You know, it comes into what did you buy your home for? What do you owe on your home? What is your future value of your home? Um, what would your home be able to sell for? Because future value is, is kind of a range of values, right? There's market value, there's appraisal value, and then there's what your it costs to do value. And a lot of the times, none of those three add up. And so it's, it's what can you afford? Do you have cash to do this? Are you going to borrow from a bank? Um, if you are going to borrow from a bank, you know, even though the bank will loan you the money, should they, because can you afford the monthly payments on your new mortgage? Um, you know, so there's a whole mess of things on what your project should be. And a lot of times we try to kick it back to professionals, you guys, realtors, appraisal or appraisers um, on helping determine that should be budget, not what their budget is. How do like if a client comes to you, right? And they're coming based off of an assumed value. And I mean, who knows how to really value what it truly costs. That's why they're coming to you ask what it costs. What if you had the ideal approach from, from someone approaching you, how do you go about finding out what it really costs without going down that route? Because to me, it sounds like I came in with 80 grand. You're telling me my budget's going to be 150. That's going to take me another year to two years to save for. I don't know if I want to wait that long. Then we're going to buy a new house. Yeah. It's like, what's the ideal for the, yeah. for the client to, to be able to be realistic without any of that previous knowledge? Yeah. I think, I think realistically, you know, we're, we're, we lean a little bit, maybe different than some builders where we, we look, we tend to focus more on the real estate side of things to create budgets. You know, we're big on trying not to get someone upside down in their home. Um, a lot of our clientele we view as first generation clients. We're trying to get them to be second generation clients in seven to 10 years when they upgrade their home. So we're trying to put them in a situation where they can benefit um, from the work we do on their home and them having some equity build over time. Um, we don't want to be in a situation where they're house poor. They can't ever do anything in there. They're permanently. Um, that doesn't bode well for us. So we, we really try to focus on spending smart money um, but building a house is emotional. It's, it's one of the, it's funny. Everyone thinks of their primary residence as their best investment. Well, your best investment should not be a hundred percent emotional and people's houses are a hundred percent emotional. So they, it is very hard when, you know, and they use the justification of an asset to tell me why they need a heated floor in their master bathroom. Well, last time I checked your appraiser is not going to come in and be like, Ooh, your floor's heated. You get another 500 bucks. You know, it just doesn't work like that. Um, they might not even know you had a heated floor. They don't know you have a Christmas light switch in your closet, you know, that we just did for a client. All these things cost money and they're emotional needs. And, and we don't even say wants anymore because when someone emotionally wants someone, it is now a need and they will do what it takes to get there. And whether that's justifying um, whatever it takes, we can go on and on. They'll, they'll make it work. So we think as an approachable real estate is okay, let's, let's just keep it high level. You know, you and I talk a lot about kissing things. like keep it simple, stupid. You know, what is, you know, ask your realtor. Realtors will give you free comps. Most realtors want to work with you. They'll help you out. Give your realtor a call. Ask them for a comp list of what sold in your neighborhood for 12, the last 12 months. And um, take a look at those prices, have them present them to you. They can print you out a report and just look at how much more, that price is than what you bought your home for and start there. Now, the problem with that is you, you can't get stuck there. 
Um, cause at that point that means nothing. That's just a baseline to where to start your research, not the research. And once you get that, that top price, you then beginning, you start looking at how big is that house? How new is that house? What amenities does that house include? How big is the lot size? Um, and then you compare that to your house. How big is your house? You know, and, and, and vice versa. And then, okay, now that's a spread. This home for a million dollars is a thousand square feet bigger than mine, two more bedrooms, a third acre bigger, which I can't do. And then you look at what you bought your home for and that gap, you then have to decide, can you make your home equal that home with that gap? And the problem is, is if you bought your home wrong, there's nothing you're going to be able to do with your gap or your spread to get to that top level price. So if you overpay for your house, you're going to have to let time go by and build some natural equity before you can use your spread. So if you are in your home for $600,000, the nicest home on the street or the best sold price on the street is a million dollars. You have $400,000. Well, if your needs, your house needs $600,000 to get to that price point, you just, you can't, you can't go there unless you're willing to be upside down your home or bring cash to the table and realize you're going to need to stay in your home for 15 years or a couple runs in the market to see that through. And so when you use like the 600 to, you know, you said, okay, I bought for 600 my, the nicest home around my property just sold for a million. So I need to have another 600. So I'm at 1.2 million. So you're saying it would be technically underwater because you're saying the market won't give you 1.2 million because in order just to get it to the million dollar value, you had to dump in an additional 200 grand. That's what exactly. you mean by underwater. Yeah. So that'd be a bad comp for you. You know, a good comp would be that you need 600,000, but the house was worth 1.5 million. Now all of a sudden we're talking remodel makes sense. Um, and that's where it comes into kind of one of those three things is your, your cost of construction doesn't equal the prey, a prey, you know, doesn't equal the market or appraised value of your home. So we may spend $600,000 to get there and it may be 1.2, but the appraiser may only give you a million bucks because no other comps support a house being one, two, no one's pushed that limit yet. And you don't want to be a trendsetter. That's hard to do. I've done it. I've been around people to do it and you better have a lot of cash and you better have a lot of patience. Um, it's a scary road to be in. So, um, we really, really, and this is where the emotional part comes in because everybody thinks, you know, when was the last time someone walked in a house and was like, man, this is accurately priced. This is, this is a good price. It's like, oh no, that roof needs to be done. It has three layers of shingles, not, not one. And oh, that bathroom's a little bit small. And did you see those closets? They didn't, they're not big enough to fit my stuff. I feel like this is 20 grand overpriced. But then when you sell your house, what do you do? I'm going to start at 600. We'd, we'd settle at 590, but we're going to start at 600 because we, we think that's worth it. It's like, okay, you know, that's just not. So, so everyone's so emotionally attached to it and, and removing that and understanding, okay. And then the question is, if I spend a million two on my house, why is it not worth a million two? That's, you know, the next conversation we have to educate people on. And it's, well, it's on paper, it is worth a million two, but market value is not determined by cost of construction. Market value is worth it by the person across the street from you deciding if they want to spend that, right? It's your house is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it, not how much it costs you to build. So we very much use comps and realtors because if someone's spending, you know, and we, and we look into trends, if someone's willing to spend a million two on a house, 
and all the houses on your street are $800,000, they're just not going to buy your home for a million too. When people step up in price for homes, you step up in neighborhoods, you step up in school districts. Um, all these things are step up in cost. You don't just, when you get to certain price points, you're not just buying for the house itself. Neighborhoods, lot sizes, you know, like we said, school districts, you know, commute for work, restaurants nearby, nightlife, whatever it may be. So some of those things, you may put whatever money in your house, you can't buy those because you're just on the wrong street. You're in the wrong neighborhood. You're on the wrong side of town. So you have to be very careful that even though that's what you spent, again, if someone has a bigger budget, they just may not be looking on your street. That's just, you know, the truth. So (laughs) Uh, I'm curious, going back to the budgeting process a little bit, could you, (laughs) how many people do you think actually stay under budget for one? And what happens to them when they don't stay under budget? What does that do to their project? And then thirdly to that is what's going to cause somebody typically to bust through their budget for. Yeah. So the budget is, you know, another way to describe it is what your house could cost. You know, a number on a paper is what your house could cost. We tell people all the time, I'll, I'll hit my budget every day of the week because I'm willing to, let my budget design my home because I'm the builder, right? If I, if I can't fit it to the budget, I just don't do it. A homeowner can't do that. And homeowners drive price way more than they want to believe. They, they want to think that it's, you know, all, all in my control, you know, or all in my subs control or, you know, this, that, and the other, and it's just not. And the best way to stay on budget is to have a realistic budget. You know, the, the very best way to stay on a budget is whatever you think it's going to cost as add a thousand bucks to every line item. And you'll stay under budget every time you look like a hero, you know, like, Oh, you thought it was going to be 400,000. You only came in at 375. Like how you're so smart. And it's like, no, I just fluffed everything. You know, I'm going to, and, and the way that we price, we share savings with our client. If we don't spend the budget, we don't pocket it, you know? And so we, as cliched as it, as it sounds like your house is going to cost what it costs. And, us being able to underwrite that has so much to do with diving into someone's personality type that it's almost impossible. We do better on some years than others year over year to hit budgets. This year, we we averaged, I think, like a nine and a half percent overages on our budgets throughout our projects, which we feel like is pretty good. We're, we're excited, especially the line of work we do. We do a lot of remodels. We do a lot of stuff where we're working on top of another house. We're building new homes with old homes in the way. So we're excited about that. But um, a new thing we've been able to implement with customers that we're just starting the last two months is emotional habits that we relate to customers as we go through. So for some reason, there's just some of our customers that no matter what, spend five to six percentage over their budget on every micro line item, no matter what. I, they just, they can't help themselves. And so if they go pick tile and I tell them their budget's $4 a square foot, Without fail, they will come back with something at 420 or 415. If I tell them they have $3,000 for light fixtures, they'll spend $3,200. Like, and it's a, and it's starting to be, I just started realizing it's like a trend, you know, and we start telling people, Hey, we're five line items into your project. You're six and a half percent over on every single thing. Like what's going on here? Do you, do you, do you have more? Like Tony, so it's almost kind of like rules are meant to be broken. So they break <laughs> the budget. And, and I hear what you're saying too. We talk about this in our industry all the time, a margin of safety. And that's kind of what you're talking about is yeah. how do you protect them from them by basically knowing that you have to plan yeah. for things not going the way you plan. 
Yeah, exactly. And so, and they just, they just spend and, and the, and the justification on a, on a micro level is so easy. You know, let's, let's take an appliance budget. For example, a lot of our appliance budgets, we start at $15,000. And when we're bidding a project, I just have to have a gut feeling. How much does Dan care about cooking? We have some conversations about it, but we're also trying to have 60 other conversations at the same time, you know, because people want their bid in a week, they want it in four days. So I got to determine this at a, at a quick pace. Well, all of a sudden we may get there and it's like, Tony, I need a $6,000 range. And it's like, well, why? Well, I need the BTUs on my stove and I need the microcontrols to melt my chocolate. And it's like, okay. And this is just a big priority for me. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's an extra $3,000 that bumps your appliances to 18. So now the question is, are we really over budget or did we just not set, you know, an accurate budget because over budget means we went to try to buy a 15, you know, $10,000 stove and every single store in the Valley told us it was $12,000. That's over budget. But if you consciously choose something more expensive than your budget, it's like, are we over budget? Or are you, you forcing that? So to kind of round it back, it's being realistic, being honest with your builder, being honest with your significant other or whoever you're doing this project with on what your, wants and needs really are. And it's exhausting to go through each line item and say what, cause you don't even realize you care about stuff like door handles. Do I care about door handles? Should I just tell them I want the cheapest door handle? But then when I look at door handles, those are all kind of ugly. So maybe I want some crystal ones. Maybe I don't, you know, there's so many little things, door hinges, you know, bath hardware, towel rings, towel bars, you know, there's all these things that people just don't even realize our priorities to them until all of a sudden you're faced with that decision six months down the road of building a budget. When I was like, Oh yeah, they don't care about that. Where they said they didn't. So it's, it's hard. So being realistic and having a good planning process with your architect, with your designer, with your builder is first and foremost, you know, we typically have a lifespan with our clients somewhere around a year to a year and a half, depending on project size, usually about six months of that four to six months is strictly planning. It is, going over your project over and over again, letting you sit and think about it for two weeks without talking to us, you know, really going over and trying to build as much as we can of this thing on paper to try to set an accurate budget, to try to project accurately of what your house could cost. So it's time and it's effort by the client on visualizing what they want. Saying I want a kitchen is not good enough. Saying you want white cabinets, not good enough. You gotta, you gotta know way more than that. And how do you know what you don't know? And that's our job is to try to help you through that. When obviously this is different, what people value, right? Yep. Each time uh, is going to be different for somebody else and they may not understand themselves. And, and I think that brings then the thought to me of, well, obviously it would be logical to pour more money into the things that you value in the home than what you don't. And yep. of course, Though what we often hear from people, and I think we have a different overall viewpoint on this, is a lot of people want to get their money back out of this house. Um, and so they will, they will want to know, for example, and this changes all the time, like, where should I put my money to get the greatest uh, return back when I sell that? And, and I'm, curious, I'm curious if you could give some input. Like I know a garage door can get you pretty far, for example, these days. Um, what that could actually look like, and you've shared a lot of materials with us in the past. Um, and is that perhaps always the right way to even think about this concept? 
Yeah, I would say it, it's the perfect way to think about it and the worst way to think about it all at the same time. You know, I, I think I've shared as a cost versus value report, you can get off remodeling.com. It's a great place to start. Um, the first thing people need to realize is, you know, our generation, right? That, that 28 to 42 year old, we grew, we are growing up in the golden age of real estate. You know, we, we, most of us bought homes in, you know, somewhere between 2010 and 2014, the bottom of the market. And this equity jump we're seeing in houses is probably not something we're going to see again. I don't know. I, I don't think so. Cause it's just been wild. People are doubling, tripling, quadrupling the price of their homes for doing nothing. And that's usually what starts the conversation of, Oh, I now am in a position to remodel my house because I bought my home for 400 and I just saw a house down the street sell for 650. It was exactly the same. I have $250,000 of equity. Well, time to upgrade, right? Time to sell, time to go buy a new house, time to get bigger, better. So, so, so keeping that equity is the focus of a lot of our first meeting conversations. I have $250,000 equity. I want an upgrade, but I also want to retain my $250,000 equity. I don't want to go upside down. You know, I don't want to waste that. And that's so hard to do. Um, and if you look at that cost versus value, there's not a single thing. I think the top rated thing is like 90%, 82%. Garage doors. Of, yeah, garage door, a single garage door, 2,500 bucks. Stop there, make your money and walk away, right? Like that's your, that's your thing. And even then you're not even recouping 100% of it. So then all of a sudden, when you hear people say, I'm going to put $100,000 in my home to make it worth $200,000 more. Like if that was realistic in this world, number one, I'd be a millionaire. Number two, everybody would be in real estate and we'd all be floating in cash. Because if it was as easy as spending money to make money, if that's as easy as it was, everybody would be doing it. Everybody would be rich off. It's just not that simple. So number one, having your primary residence, and I say primary residence, be something that you are first and foremost thinking is an investment, which is why you're going to move forward with your remodel. Just stop, fold your dollar in half, put it in your pocket, be done with it. You're going to, you know, just don't because selling your primary residence, doing a HELOC, doing a second more, all these things you have to borrow back the money you've saved or you've made. You, nobody can ever be without a primary, res, primary residence. And if you do have a primary residence that you love so much and you think, is a, and is, think of as an investment, you're probably not someone that's willing to go to a one bedroom apartment for two years so you can actually hold on to that cash. You know, houses are a big deal to you, which gets into the emotional play. So thinking of an investment first is just hard. It's, it's a tough way to go about it. Our goal is to make sure you're not upside down and spend your money smart. So you're not in a bad position, but accept and understand you're doing this because you want to. It's like someone putting an at-home gym in their house. Talked with someone about this the other day. Just ignore, like you're trying to go budget on this. Like you're going to spend $10,000 buying equipment, put all this stuff in your gym. How many times can you pay us? hundred dollar a month membership to the gym before you get that back. You've clearly, whatever justification that you can sell your equipment and make money or, oh, now I, it's convenient. So I don't have to do a three minute drive. Like you've already crawled, like just stop, just say, I want this, own up to it. And it can be a happier, more pleasant process. So be realistic. Um, and I think that going back into, and we can talk more about this, is really understanding your neighborhood, really understanding your financial situation. You know, what is the spread of my house versus top rated home versus what I'm into my home? 
and what's it going to take to get there. And the what's it going to take to get there is going to involve interviewing multiple builders, getting their opinions and thoughts and, you know, moving forward from there. So I'm going to take it back a little bit, but it's almost based off of your idea of, you know, your house isn't an investment. Um, It's emotional drive, but I know Tony, you and I have talked quite a bit about this is designers. So based off of, if I'm going to keep what you've been saying kind of simple, right? If I'm going to kiss it, it sounds like you really are in the control of the cost of the house. Because if, if I understand right, Tony, your builder fee is anywhere from what, 12 to 15, 18%, somewhere around there, correct? Yeah, give or take 12 to 12 to 20, depending on size of project. Yeah. So if if your builder fee is that off of, let's say, you know, $500,000 home, the, that's a small cost to the overall cost of the project, right? But that means you have control of what you're putting in your house. So it's really the cost of materials and some labor, obviously, if you have other subs and things coming through the home. But when you get designers involved, designers are incentivized to make a beautiful home so they can put it on their websites, I'm assuming. And that means you have to have probably nicer stuff. Instead of going to Target, you're going to be going to up designers. So how do clients deal with getting a designer involved, but then also maybe trying to be under budget? Yeah, I think, so we're starting to implement needing to have designers because it's it's an emotional strain on people not to have one. You've got to, you know, if you're at a price point of $400,000, $500,000, you better get yourself a designer. You're going down a, a path you don't want to do. And this is for a remodel, right? Not for a new home. Four or $500,000 for a new home would be uh, more in the entry level market. Um, but the reason why a designer can, can hurt budget at times is you're right. They're, they're not going to do something that's not on brand for them. And that's because every time someone else walks in that home beside you is really who they're designing that home for. You know, they're designing it for what you want, but they're also designing it to impress your friends, your family, your acquaintances. You know, that's how we build business. I, I told a client today, you know, Hey, I'm building your house. You may not care about the quality, but I do. Cause you're going to have someone walk in this house someday that understands and knows construction. And I want to impress them. You know, that's, that's what we're doing this for. And the biggest battle of staying on budget when you bring on a designer, when you bring on a builder and bring on an architect is they have a different project in their mind than you have in your mind. And if you knew their project before you started, you'd probably be like, Whoa, we don't need that. Or, Oh, Hey, that's a little bit nicer than, than I need, but you can't conceptualize it. So, you know, we tell people in our meetings, you know, if we can get to a point where the house in your mind, the house in my mind, the house in the designer's mind, the house in the architect's mind from A to Z is the exact same home. Easiest process we're going to have. Build's going to be smooth. We're going to hit budgets. But it's when I misrepresent the designer's concept and I misrepresent, you know, the client or the architects or the client's concept. It's, it's where trouble happens. And that's when people are too quiet. They're not forward about what their wants and needs are. And they're not truthful about what their budget should be. And they're just, they don't understand their personal financial situation going into it. What about when designers specifically, you know, when you're trying to go under budget, um, I know you've mentioned this, but people will maybe go off the designers, you know, maybe their say, right. They'll go off of maybe their opinion and you kind of get a mash of the client and the designer within the project. How does that overall work? Or is it hard? Or do you want to just follow the designer hundred percent? Like when you bring them on, you go for it you know, cause you have different tastes getting mixed. And so we've been a part of projects that live and die by the designer. We've been a part of projects where we've had the client fire the designer, honestly. And 
you know, people ask us all the time on how to choose a designer. We're usually, you know, second or third person in the process. People usually meet with designer, then they get an architect and then the designer architect refer them builders. So a lot of times that that's already decided when we get into play, but we tell people pick your designer by personality and, and how you get along with them. You know, it's kind of, you have to assume competence, you know, so you need to do your background checks. You can't just look up in the yellow pages. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to call designer a, you know, you need to do your homework. What kind of products do they put out? Most designers have a brand they put out. If their brand is not your likes and your needs and your wants, they're not going to change it for you. You know, so just stop with that. If they're ultra traditional and you're modern, but you like them, it's not a right fit. If they're ultra modern and you're ultra modern and you hate them, not a right fit. They have to, you know, have your style in mind because it's what they do. And then they also have to get along with you on a personal level because it's extremely close. Same as thing with your guys' clients, right? Compatibility with personalities is huge um, for the success of a construction project. I'm going to take the last one here, Tony. If you had to boil it all down to one big idea, one recommendation for the prospects or clients that for the people that become your clients on what to be most aware of if they were to come to you for uh, building a new home or a remodel, what would that be and why? Oh, I would probably one thing. <laughs> that's, that's tough. <laughs> Make sure they have a good contract. Um, but I'm not going to, I'm going to have that be a cheater. Like maybe it could be that, but um, you know, I think understanding, understanding true scope of work. I think if you have a true understanding of scope of work, whether it's with your designer or your architect or your builder is a first path to success. So often will I get people that have bad experiences um, that just were unaware of what the process was really going to be, what was really happening in the house or lack thereof. They thought this was included and it wasn't. They didn't realize that was included, but the budget was so low, you know, that like there's, there's so many times where trust and naiveness kind of start to compete with each other. You know, you can't be afraid to ask questions, but you also have to trust the person you're going to hire, you know, so ask questions, ask, interview five builders, ask the, every single one of them the same question, you know, don't change, you know, we love being last builder in cause we have an educated client at that point. So it's the best, but, but for someone to understand scope of work is such an advantage over a client that just, it goes, Oh, my builder will figure it out. And then all of a sudden halfway through, they're just upset or their expectations aren't met or something like that. So understanding true scope of work would probably be the, the number one for me you know, a good example of understanding scope of work is if I'm working in your kitchen and you're going to be in the house still, you know, your air system pulls air from that kitchen. It pulls area from where, and you're going to get dust everywhere in your home. And that means we're going to be, need to be downstairs vacuuming and we're going to need to set up dust control, which is a line item, which is a budget thing. Um, but it's going to be dusty. You're going to have to live through dust, deal with dust. And if you don't realize that, because you're not understanding the scope of work and the expectations of that, that can be a miserable point in the process where you're like, man, what is going on? Um, so we really try to highlight, you know, 
every little thing that can happen in the scope of work we're going to be doing as we work with you on your house. So kind of going back to more of the investment as being a primary, real, a primary investment or an investment in your primary residence is what I should say. A lot of people come to us and say, oh, I want to do cosmetic updates because I, I'm going to either make money on it, like you kind of mentioned, or I want it to sell, get off the market quicker. Like, What's your overall opinion about doing a remodel not just to make money, but to maybe get off the market quicker. Could you go into like more depth about that? Would you really just say, fold up the dollar, let it be? Because a lot of people say, oh, I just painted or I added some laminate flooring to, you know, up myself the house or a realtor recommends it. Like what's your overall opinion on that type of, of work? So just, so to get, make sure I'm answering the right question. So what's my opinion on doing updates in order to increase the value of your home or to be able to sell your home quicker? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I guess, two part question would be what you sell quicker or actually make money. <laughs> like, is yeah, that what so, you're doing it for is to sell quicker? Yeah, no, you're doing it because you want to do it. You know, we tell people all the time, they go to list their homes. So I have my business part, partner in California right now is trying to sell his house and they did a remodel. Um, and they were planning on living there for a long time, but there's been some other things that he's like, oh, we, we're going to do this to increase the value of our house. I'm like, just don't like do a concession on the sell of the price before you spend cash out of your pocket. For me, there's such this, this disproportion between, you know, a 30 year mortgage and cash out of your pocket onto a house. So if your list price on a home is $500,000, why would you ever spend $3,000 to get $3,000 or if you look at that cost versus value, $2,000 or $1,500. You know, it's just, it's not worth it. If you need to mark down your house, $3,000 less, you need to go from $500,000 to $497,000. Like when you look at it like that, it's such a, like why spend the time, the effort, you know, just list it and be done with it. So any upgrade you're going to do to the home, you know, make sure you're emotionally ready for it and that you want it. Don't get stuck in this constant loop of increasing your home, increasing your home, do one big project a year. Don't do a bunch of projects, you know, it can save, you know, the mental health of, you know, the relationship in the home, save you time. You know, a lot of the times I, I tell people like, man, rather than working every weekend, why don't you just work overtime at your job and make twice as much money and, you know, and, and hire it, hire it out. But, but no, I think to the second point of selling your home quicker is, such a forgotten point in this market. Right now, the market is is stronger than it ever has been. It's a buyer's market. It still is here in Salt Lake City. And, or sorry, a seller's market. And sellers are getting what they want, when they want, as fast as they want it. And no longer do you need to upgrade your home to get top dollar. You know, that's kind of the, when we talk about market values and we talk about you know, price increases in houses, you don't have to have a perfect lawn anymore. You don't have to have fresh carpet and fresh paint. People are just buying it because there's low inventory, there's relocation, there's a, a million things we could go into, but you just don't have to do those things. Now, 10 years ago, when there was a bunch of houses for sale, inventory was up, price, you know, it was a little bit more of a buyer's market. And buyers could pick and choose and be like, you know, that they were a little bit more picky because we can be, yeah, you better paint that house. You better make sure the windows are clean and the, the lawn is trimmed and you have good maintenance on your home. But in today's market, it's just, it's, 
it's a seller's market. You know, buyers are, you know, buying things because they're afraid there's nothing to come. You know, that's how bad it is right now. Someone will put an offer on the home because they're scared something else may not come up. They're not even buying it because they like the home. They're literally buying it out of fear that there might not be something else. And that's, and it's been going like that. And I don't know when it's going to stop. I, I'm going to call you guys to answer that question. But, um, you know, when you get into situations like that and you want to talk about future value, you want to talk about the gamble that it is on betting on this emotional market to tell you the value of your home when, you know, it's, it's all over the place and that can drop at any minute, you know, and, and the more people that list their house or foreclose and inventory changes, I mean, that all moves quickly. I've been doing this for a long time and there's nothing that scares me more than projecting future value of a home over a year, you know, which is a, an average flip by the time you look for a house, close on a house, you take over the house, you rehab the house, you list the house, you sell the house. It's not a three month process. And right now, quarter by quarter, I mean, you know, where it's 2021 and we're hoping this year is a little different, but a quarter last year was like two years worth of any time in the past. So, you know, it's, it's crazy. As, um, as a final thought, I, I, I just thinking more and more on, you know, is a primary residence a good investment? And, uh, I think Tony, you're a hundred percent right. You know, people will justify what they want uh, to get it. And that's not necessarily always a, a bad thing. It can be a very dangerous thing. I mean, we see all the time. It's not that you can't make money on your primary residence. You, you can. Um, but with that being said, there are other factors to consider to remove that danger that you find the justification often we find ourselves talking about things like, well, there's a liquidity factor. So um, a lot of people, their largest asset is their primary residence and it is an illiquid asset. And that's an issue that I think gets justified away when we, when we, when we talk to somebody about, is this really um, a, uh, the, the right in investment concept at play? Uh, your home is one of your biggest assets. And assets mm-hmm. are not bad to have, but a home is a living, breathing asset. It needs money to keep it alive. It needs money to grow itself. It's, it's not a passive income. It is not a, you know, dividend. It is, it is not any of those things. You know, they're starting to take away some mortgage interest breaks, you know, like it's, it's an asset. And I don't think having assets is ever a bad thing, but when you talk mm-hmm. about a liquid investment, like, no, it's just not that it's, it's, that's a different concept. And, and I a, think that that's a healthy way to look at it is can you separate that? I mean, if we're talking dream homes, like, like that you build Tony, people are often saving for quite some time to perhaps get into that to begin with. And it's probably their last home until somebody rips and pulls them off their property. Right. Yeah. And if that's the case, then Often we always mention to people, well, then it really isn't your investment. It's your asset. You're enjoying it. Yeah. It's really your kid's investment because yeah, that's kids who make the most money property. off of real estate. Exactly. You're never realizing that gain. Right. Yeah. So anyways, that's, that's, there's my final thought. And I just find that to be just a fascinating, fun conversation. The, the whole, this whole podcast was, so thank you, Tony. Yeah. You know, through this whole conversation and it really kind of hits close to home for us as I think a lot of your sediment comes from trusting the professional. And 
I think that's a really big deal and a really big point. Now, I, I'm, I have the privilege, obviously, to talk with you on a consistent basis about your world. So I'm probably more informed about the world than the majority of the public. And I can tell you right now, talking with you makes me feel very, very dumb and not knowing the world, even though I have, you know, unbridled access to it. Um, and I think that what I and why I say that is people need to do their research. And like you said, interview multiple builders and really understand the process. Now, you don't have to know everything, but you absolutely need to understand what you're getting yourself into to have realistic expectations. But I think sometimes people have a hard time because that takes work and it takes effort and it takes time to do it right. But I would agree with you that you'll find the person that you trust, the one that you can actually go and do it with where you don't have that anxiety. And I think that's not just within the construction world. I think that's in the financial world, attorney world, banking world, any other service professional. Um, and I will. So, uh, Tony, you, you said a couple of great things that I just want to highlight real quick. Uh, you said that most people's primary investment should not, which is typically their home should not be something that they're 100% emotionally invested in. And also another one was your house is worth only what someone is willing to pay for it. And I thought that those were great, great concepts to really that I just like to hammer home in that people are emotional and when they're emotional, they become irrational. So it's always about being rational always it always wins out right no, I love that. I you're up tony what's your final thoughts my final thoughts are that we could talk about this for three more hours um no i think that you know if you want to if if you're really looking to spend money on improving your home doing a large project buying a new home you know we tell homeowners all the time it's a full-time job you know when we get into a you know two person household that we're working with, we, we try to designate one as the captain as the team lead, you know, and say, you know, you need 15, you know, Dan knows this. He just got done building the house. You need 15 hours a week and you need 30 hours a week mentally and 60 if you really love it, you know, it's all you think about, it consumes your life and rushing into, you know, a home is usually one of the biggest assets on someone's book, no matter their net worth and to not take a breath slow down, do your research, talk to your financial advisor, talk to your real realtor, interview a couple of builders to rush something of that magnitude um, is just, is just crazy to me, you know, and, and we've had people that, that try to interview us and we say, who else are you interviewing? And they say nobody. And we're like, well, we're not going to let you hire us unless you go interview somebody else. You know, we want you to want to hire us, not like you have to. And and uh, so all the homeowners out there, just don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to bring other professionals into the mix. Um, get everyone on the same page and truly be honest with yourself about your budget and about your wants and needs. And that's the first step into having a successful project. Tony, again, thank you very much for, for joining us tonight and sharing your wisdom. And thank you to our audience for joining us and hearing Tony's wisdom. And as always, we appreciate you uh, thinking critically with us. Have a great evening. Thank you for taking the time to start your journey of thinking differently and listening to LBW talk about stuff they love. Until next time.